Psalm 119. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. For I find delight in your commandments, which I love. Let your mercy come to me, that I may live, for your law is my delight. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More are they to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Romans 3, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Romans 4. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Romans 5, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And Romans 6, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Now, to the untrained ear, the biblical teaching on the law can sound a bit schizophrenic. On the one hand, you have the psalmists waxing eloquent about the beauty and the wonder and the glory of the law, while on the other hand, Paul makes law sound like a cuss word. The psalmists say that the law revives the soul. Paul calls it the law of sin and death. The psalmists delight in the law. Paul seems to detest the law. For the psalmist, the law brings blessing. For Paul, the law brings wrath. For the psalmist, the law increases righteousness. For Paul, the law increases the trespass. Perhaps Paul's most damning condemnation of the law came in last week's passage when he compares the law to a loveless and abusive husband who holds us captive and who keeps us from serving God in the Spirit and arouses within us sinful passions such that we actually bear fruit for death. And so what gives... How do we reconcile these two apparently contradictory views of the law of God? Well, let me assure you that the contradiction is only apparent. It is not real. 
In other words, Paul could just as easily written those psalms that I read just a moment ago, and the psalmists, the psalmists could just as easily have written Romans, as evidenced by the fact that Paul actually quotes from the psalms multiple times throughout Romans, including in chapter 4, which is the center of his argument that justification is by faith alone apart from works of the law. Nevertheless, what Paul said last in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 7 has has brought his anti-law tirade to a climax. And he senses, I think, beginning in Romans 7, the need to explain himself, lest he be misunderstood. In other words, Paul senses that the time has come for him to redeem the law in the ears and the eyes of his hearers. So Paul is going to utilize one of his favorite rhetorical devices. He's going to draw a hypothetical or not-so-hypothetical conclusion from what he has just said. He does this over and over again. It goes like this. What shall we say then? Are we to sin so that grace may abound? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin because we're no longer under law but under grace? And then he's going to dismiss that false conclusion with a strong denunciation, by no means, or God forbid, and then proceed to explain why. That's what Paul did in 6.1, that's what he did in 6.14, that's what he's going to do again here in 7.7. In fact... All of verses 7 to 25 of Romans chapter 7, which we'll cover over the next two weeks, are designed to show us that the problem is not with the law. The problem is with us. In verses 7 to 13, Paul is going to explain that the problem can't be with the law because the law is holy and righteous and good. And then in verses 14 to 25, Paul will explain that I'm the problem. The problem is sin which dwells within me, which turns God's holy law into what he'll call in Romans 8 2, the law of sin and death. But before we can jump into today's text, we need to answer a question which has plagued interpreters and commentators for, for years and continues to divide them today. And the question is this, what does Paul mean by law. Does he mean law in general, like some kind of universal moral law? Or does he mean the law of Moses in particular, that which was written on tablets of stone and handed to Moses and passed down to his people Israel? Well, that question is made difficult by the fact that Paul actually uses the same word, law, namas, in several different ways, or or maybe better, in several different nuances. And sometimes in the course of the very same passage, sometimes in the course of the very same verse. To give you but one example of this phenomenon, I want you to turn back with me to Romans chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. In these three verses, Paul is going to use the word law 11 times. 
For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. I want you to look at verse 13. Paul uses law in verse 13 to refer to the law of Moses given to Israel. So that those who are without the law are Gentiles, and those who are under the law are Jews. But in verses 14 to 15, Paul changes what he means by law. In verse 14, law seems to mean the universal moral law, because Paul appears to be handing down a principle which applies to both groups mentioned in verse 13. That is, both Jews and Gentiles. And then in verse 15... Paul says that the Gentiles do not have the law, once again referring to the law of Moses, nevertheless, when by nature they do the things of the law, they show that the law is written on their hearts. It's written on their conscience. Now, now what law is he talking about? Well, it certainly can't refer to the entire law of Moses with all of its ceremonial and ritual components because Gentiles by nature don't keep the kosher laws of clean and unclean food or the festivals and the feasts or the sacrifices. How could they? Those ritual components and ordinances of the law of Moses are not universally Known. They're not written upon the conscience. So Paul must be referring there once again to that universal moral law which all men, Jew and Gentile, actually know by nature. That law which Paul exposited for us in Romans chapter 1, which says that there is one Creator God whom you ought to love and worship and obey, and that you ought to love your neighbor and not steal from him or kill him or violate your covenants with him. That universal law that says love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength as your creator, as your God, and love your neighbor as yourself. So to return to the question, when Paul refers to the law in Romans as the law which cannot justify the law which brings wrath and increases the trespass, the law of sin and death, the law which operates by works and is set in opposition to grace and faith, the law which held us captive and arouses our sinful passions, the law to which we must die or else we cannot live, to which law does he refer? I contend that he refers to the universal moral law of God in whatever form you have it. Whether it is written or unwritten. That universal 
moral law of God, which Jesus summarized as loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself, that law is is painted across the canvas of creation, Romans 1, 19-21. It's graven upon the consciences of men who are made in God's image, Romans 2, 14-15. And it was written on tablets of stone by the finger of God on Mount Sinai and was given to Israel in the form of Ten Commandments. That's the law of which Paul usually speaks in his argument in Romans. Another way to state it is that the law of which Paul speaks is the law by which you will be judged. It's the law to which everyone has access in one form or another. Every person with a rational mind, it is a law which renders them inexcusable before God. This was the law or the covenant under which Adam lived. And this is the law or the covenant under which all those who are still in Adam live. And this is the law to which every one of us must die if we are then to be united to Christ in a new covenant of grace. So with that definition in place, let's ask the question of what the law cannot do. Why does Paul so disparage the law? It's because the law is powerless. It is impotent. A law is not a person. A law is a thing. It is an inanimate standard of right and wrong. It is a definition of what is good and what is evil. All the law is able to do is to tell you what is good and to promise you blessing if you will do what is good and to tell you what is evil and to threaten you with curses if you do what is evil. But the law has no power whatever to take someone who is by nature evil and turn them into someone who is good. It has no power to promise blessing to those who are under its curse. The law is just that. It is a law. It is not a savior. It is not a redeemer. It is not a God. But many Jews in Paul's day and many churchgoers today have taken that law and they've turned it into a savior. They've turned it into an idol. They have trusted it. They have served it. They have thought, if I just do what the law says, I will be righteous. And many in Paul's day imagined that, Paul among them, Philippians 3.6, as to the righteousness under the law, I was blameless. But it was an illusion. It required twisting the law into something that was merely external, something ceremonial, something ritualistic, something attainable in their own strength, something to do rather than something to be. Paul highlights this this tendency And applies it to the Jews in Romans chapter 9, verse 30, when he says, What shall we say then? 
that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. That is, they, they took the law and they treated it like a savior. They did not achieve, they did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were based upon works. It was this, this tendency to think that the law, or, or more precisely the works of the law, my works, could justify and sanctify, that is, could make me righteous that Paul hated so much, that he considered so dangerous and so deadly. Because he knew from experience what it is like to externalize the law, to idolize the law, to serve the law and think that you're actually serving God and imagine that you are righteous. And it's in that context that Paul speaks so negatively about God's holy law. What sinners need is not the law, they need a Savior. And so Paul says things like, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. And he refers to the law as the law of sin and death. And he compares it even to an abusive husband to whom we must die or else he will kill us. Like he did in the first six verses of chapter 7. That's the backdrop of Paul's defense of the law which comes now in verse 7 of Romans 7. Let's look at verse, uh, verses 7 to 12 again. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The main point of this passage is, is found in verse 12, where Paul answers the question posed in verse 7. Is the law sin? God forbid. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. I mean, how, how could it be otherwise? It's the law of God. It reflects His own holy and righteous and good nature. God created us in His image in order to reflect His own character. And so if we are going to be His image bearers, this is what our life is going to look like. This is what we are going to look like. We're going to look like the law. So the problem is not with the law, says Paul. The problem is with us. We don't look like this. And when the holy law meets with unholy people, dreadful things happen. 
And in verses 7 to 12, Paul mentions two dreadful effects of the law upon sinners. And then one, in verse 13, good and holy effect. So let's look at the two dreadful effects. Number one, the law awakens sin. Now previously, Paul says, sin had lied dormant in the heart. It was like it was sleeping. But when the commandment comes, that sin awakens within us like a monster. And it begins to overtake our souls. I think this is Paul's meaning in the second half of verse 7 and into verse 8. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now this section of Romans suddenly becomes autobiographical. I want you to notice the first person throughout the rest of the chapter. In other words, Paul is speaking of himself. But he's not only speaking of himself, he's speaking of all of us. He's not only speaking autobiographically, he's also speaking typically. That is, he's putting himself forward as typical of every man. His experience is typical of all of our experiences. And what he here describes is is what we might call the forbidden fruit phenomenon. Sin lies dormant within the heart until the law comes and awakens it by means of a prohibition, a thou shalt not. And the word Paul uses there to describe the effect of the law provides a great word picture for what happens. He says, sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment. And that word translated opportunity is a military term. It it actually refers to a bridgehead or a base of operations in enemy territory. And so you can kind of picture sin for Paul as an enemy force encamped on the other side of the river from the city of your soul, which is otherwise defenseless. Sin is that enemy force waiting to take the city, but it can't get across the river until eventually its engineers construct a floating bridge and forms a bridgehead upon the completion of which the enemy forces just pour into the defenseless city and take it. That bridge, which provides sin, its entrance into your heart, into your soul, into um, the, the dominant control of your being, that bridge is the commandment. Even so, he says, sin lies dormant within our nature. It's just, it's just lying there, waiting for the opportunity, waiting for the bridge. Then when the commandment comes, sin awakens. Verse 5 says, it's aroused. The idea is planted into the mind, desire arises, and soon that thought becomes an obsession, and the obsession will not be sated until it has tasted of the forbidden fruit. One classic illustration of this comes from Augustine's Confessions, in which he tells the story of being 16 years old, and he's running around um, North Africa with with a gang of teenagers, 
And one night, he, uh, he goes to the house of a wealthy person, and, and, he, and he finds a, a pear grove, and he, and he takes the pear tree, and he begins to shake it, and they all kind of gather together, and they steal this guy's fruit. And decades later, when he's writing his confessions, Augustine's reflecting upon that night, and he confesses, you know, he didn't steal the pears because he was hungry, because... They all just, they were just a bunch of rich kids running together. They just took the pears and they threw them to the pigs. He says, quote, I stole something which I had in plenty and of much better quality. My desire was to enjoy not what I sought by stealing, but merely the excitement of thieving and of doing what was wrong. And then he asked this question. Was it possible to take pleasure in what was illicit for no other reason than that it was not allowed? See, the problem was not with the commandment, do not steal. That commandment is holy and right and good. It's holy and right and good not to steal. No, the problem was with the sin that lied dormant within Augustine's heart. And when the commandment came, an opportunity presented itself, sin was aroused and it used the, the commandment to increase his desire and it took the opportunity to produce theft. This is what Paul means when he says, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. I don't think Paul means... I would not know the definition of covetousness. Because Paul affirms in Romans 1.29 that even pagans know that it's wrong to covet. Rather, I think what he means is, I wouldn't have, you can kind of put it in italics, I wouldn't have known coveting unless the law had said, do not covet. I would not have known it intensely, experientially, obsessively. And it's interesting that Paul selects the 10th commandment because it's the one commandment out of the 10 that cannot so easily be externalized. Now don't get me wrong, all of the commandments are internal. Jesus makes that clear in, in Matthew 5 when he equates hatred and unforgiveness with murder or lust with adultery. Or when he summarizes in Matthew 22, all of the law in terms of love. But it's, it's quite possible to deceive yourself into thinking that you've kept all the commandments from your youth, like the rich young ruler, if you only conceive of them in external terms. This is precisely how Paul considered himself to be blameless in the eyes of the law. But the funny thing about coveting is you can't externalize coveting. You know when you burn with lust for another man's wife or for another man's wealth or for another man's reputation or for another man's gifts. And Paul confesses that's what tripped him up. He could convince himself that he wasn't an idolater because he worshipped the one true God and he presented all the right sacrifices. He could convince himself he wasn't a murderer because he didn't actually kill anyone. That is, anyone who didn't deserve killing, like Christians. 
He could convince himself that he wasn't a liar or a thief, but he couldn't convince himself that he wasn't a coveter. You can kind of imagine Paul at 18 or 19 years old studying the law in Jerusalem under the rabbi Gamaliel, being confronted with the commandment, hearing it expounded by the rabbis, and suddenly it hits him. That's me. You can imagine young Paul walking through the holy city, coveting the the praise and the prestige that was accorded to the members of the Sanhedrin, the way people moved out of their way and they bowed their heads in deference to the holy ones when they walked by and they they just seemed to hang on their every word. And Paul said, I want that. Or when he walked past the the luxurious homes of the aristocracy, and he said, I want that. Or when his feet found his way to the darker corners of town, and he found a beautiful woman, a prostitute perhaps, and he burned with illicit desire, and he said, I want that. Paul knew what it was to covet. But he says, the more I focused upon the commandment, the more I tried to suppress these desires, the more they burned, producing covetousness of every kind. Apart from the law, sin lies dead in the sense that it lies dormant or inactive, like that enemy force on the other side of the river. But when the commandment come, it forms a bridgehead and sin comes sweeping across the river and it ravages the city of your soul. So the law awakens sin. Number two, the law kills sinners. This is Paul's point in verses 9 to 11. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. Now, verse 9 has, has puzzled interpreters because at what point in the life of a zealously orthodox Jewish man is he ever really apart from the law? Well, Paul cannot mean that There was a time when he was apart from the law's instruction or the knowledge of the law or the rule of the law. He must mean that there was a time when he was apart from the conviction of the law. In other words, he was like the rich young ruler. All these things I've kept from my youth up. And at that time, he says, I was alive apart from the law. That is, I was free from a troubled conscience. I was free from the law's condemning voice. But then the commandment came. And this is when the the law, which Paul knew by heart from childhood, came home with a convicting force. And it opened his eyes to the true extent of the law's demands and convicted him of his inability to measure up. For Paul, as he said in verse 8, This particularly was the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. When that commandment came, sin came alive, literally it sprang to life like a a sleeping tiger, and Paul died. Now Paul is again speaking of the phenomenon he described in verse 8, where the law actually arouses or provokes or awakens sin so that it rages and burns 
all the more. And this produced a feeling of utter despair in Paul that felt like death. And for the first time, Paul knew that he was not right with God. That he was not holy. That he was not alive to God. He was dead in trespasses and sins. Leon Morris writes, When the commandment came, it killed forever the proud Pharisee, thanking God that he was not as other men and sure of his merits before God. It killed off the happy sinner, for it showed him the seriousness, not so much of sin in general, as of his own sin. The coming of the law, in that sense, always kills off our cheerful assumption of innocence. We see ourselves for what we really are, sinners, and we die. It marks the end of self-confidence, self-satisfaction, self-reliance. It is death. And in verse 10, Paul reflects upon the irony, if irony is the right word, the commandment that promised life actually ended up producing death. Well, in what way did the commandment promise life? Well, remember, Paul's purpose in this passage is to redeem, it's to exonerate the law from the charge that the law is itself sinful. So the fact that the law proved to be death is not the fault of the law. The law is neutral. It promises life to those who obey. It promises death to those who disobey. All the promises in the law of life and blessing for obedience are real promises. For instance, Leviticus 18.5, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. Or Ezekiel 20.11, I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. Or Luke 10.25, from the lips of Jesus himself, when the lawyer stood up to put him to the test and said, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what does the law say? What's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Go, do this, and you will live. Jesus is not lying. That statement is precisely true. If that man had been able to love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength and love his neighbor as himself, he would have lived forever. But he couldn't. And Jesus knew it. The man's heart was eaten up with sin and self-love, which is evidenced by the very next verse when Luke says, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus responded with the parable of the Good Samaritan to show that this man loved neither God nor his neighbor. The point is that he couldn't keep the law perfectly, and so he couldn't live by the law, and neither can you. Therefore, for sinners like us, who are eaten up with self-love like that man, the law can bring only death. In verse 11, Paul again uses the military language of a bridgehead. To say that sin seized the opportunity afforded by the commandment to deceive him and to kill him. 
When the commandment, you shall not covet, comes, sin is aroused and begins to whisper in, in Paul's ear, just like the serpent in the garden, you will not surely die. Take that fruit that is forbidden and eat it, and you'll be like God. Now, notice once again, the fault does not lie with the law. The law is not to blame. It is sin, specifically our sin, which ultimately produces death. The law simply pronounces our condemnation and declares death sentence, which we so justly deserve. So is the law sin? By no means, Paul says. Rather, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. It's holy because it comes from God and is reflective of God's own holy character. It is righteous because it is equitable. It's just. And it's good because the law actually has our good in mind and not our harm. God gives us the law like parents give their children commandments that say, don't play in the street or else you'll get hurt. And they threaten punishment if those kids disobey. Why? Because they're mad at their kids? No, because they love them. The problem's not with the law, Paul says. The problem is with us. But there is a good effect of the law upon sinners. And that is that the law reveals our sinfulness. In verse 13, which forms a transition to the next paragraph, which we're going to begin next week, Paul reiterates what he's already established. The law is not the cause of sin and death. I am the cause of sin and death. The law is not the problem. I am the problem. But in verse 13, Paul adds one final, vitally important component to his argument, namely purpose. God had a good and holy purpose in giving the law to sinners whom he knew were unable to keep it. It's the same good and holy purpose for which Jesus gave the law to the rich young ruler. He knew he couldn't keep it. He gave it to him because he wanted him to come to the end of himself. He wanted him to see the exceeding sinfulness of his own sin. Verse 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So God's purpose in giving the law to sinners who are unable to keep it is, is in order to reveal to us, to our own hearts, our own utter sinfulness, which otherwise would remain hidden beneath the veil of our own self-righteous pride. Because it's only when confronted with the holy, righteous, and good law that we come to realize how evil we really are, how hopeless is our plight, and how desperate is our need. Then and only then are we, are we willing to die to sin. Are we able to die to sin and turn to Christ and embrace Him for the grace and the forgiveness and the righteousness which we so desperately need and which we could never procure for ourselves? That's the theme of next week's message. In 1 Timothy 1.8, Paul says that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. What does he mean? 
What is the lawful use of the law for the church? Well, let me close with three applications from what we've learned today about the law. Okay, three applications for First Baptist Nixa, three applications for you. Number one, you must die by the law before you can live by the gospel. You need to experience what Paul describes in these verses. You need to experience the death of your self-righteousness, the end of your strength. You need to look into the mirror of the law and find that you are sinful beyond measure. Verse 13. It is doubtful whether any of us can truly embrace Christ as our only hope until all other hopes have been destroyed and only the law can do that. So let me state this as clearly as I can. The law commands you. The law commands you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, all the time. And to love your neighbor as yourself. The law commands you to love God as He deserves. Namely, with everything. And unless you fulfill that law, you are damned by the law. Just let that sink in. You have no hope. You have no future. You have no destiny except what the author of Hebrews calls the fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries if your hope is found in the law and in your own ability to keep it. So you need to die by the law before you can live by the gospel. Implication number two. You dare not look to the law for grace and forgiveness because there's nothing to be found there. The law offers no grace. It offers no mercy. It offers no forgiveness. That's not its role. And so, if you are in need of grace and mercy and forgiveness, which you are as a sinner who can't love God as He deserves, then you're going to have to look somewhere else. You're going to have to look to Christ and to His righteousness, which is given to you apart from the law, through faith, Romans 3.21. God sent His only begotten Son because we could not keep the law. This is what John means in 117 when he says, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So do not look to the law to save you because that is nothing else than looking to yourself to save yourself. Look to Christ. He will redeem you from the law's condemnation. He will justify you by His blood and righteousness. And that's going to be the theme of next week's message as we culminate on verse 25 of chapter 7. Third, going all the way back to the beginning and trying to make sense of those psalms, the law is the delight of those in whom the Spirit dwells. 
That's how the psalmist could wax eloquent about their love for the law. It's not that they were different than you and I. It's not that they were righteous in themselves. It's that they had found grace and forgiveness apart from the law through faith in the mercy of God. And so the law was no longer a terror for them. It was the delightful and sure and certain path to righteousness which they were enabled to tread by the power of the Spirit. That's going to be the theme of Romans chapter 8 where Paul will describe how it is that the righteous requirement of the law is actually fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. So here's what Romans 7, 7 7-13 says to you on this rainy Memorial Day Sunday. It says to you, you have to die by the law. It says to you, you need to live by Christ. And it says to you that you need to walk by the Spirit. That is the path of life which the law sets out before you. 